If you just joined us, we are in a series in the book of Revelation. We took a week out for Easter. Uh, let me just give you a quick overview of the book. In chapter 1, we had the vision of the risen, ascended Lord Jesus, who is seated on his throne. And if you remember, it just blows your mind as to who Jesus is. He's not just the man on the cross. He's not just the man who was risen from the dead. He is the risen, ascended Lord Jesus, who has eyes like blazing fire, who has feet like burnished bronze, who has a face shining like the sun. He is the one who is worthy of, of praise and honor and glory and power. And in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, that risen Lord Jesus who holds the church in his hand gives his verdict on his church. And he commends his church because his church, uh, they are working hard for him. And his church are holding firm to the truth and his church are suffering for the gospel. But that's not the whole picture because he rebukes his church. If you were here, he rebuked the church because the church has lost its first love. Oh, it's doing lots of stuff, but it's lost its love for Jesus. The church was compromising their conduct. You know, they sat in church Sunday by Sunday. They read the scriptures. They sang the songs. And they walked out of the building. And they lived lives which were no different from the rest of the world. Or the church was relying on its reputation. They thought they were important. They thought they'd made it. And they'd they'd lost their anchor called Jesus Christ. Chapters 4 and 5, we had a picture of the, the throne room of heaven. God's on his throne. The lamb's at the center of the throne. It's a picture of worship. And everyone is praising and adoring their great heavenly father. Chapters 6 to 22, which is where Revelation gets interesting. And that's why I'm giving this overview. Chapters 6 to 22, listen very carefully, is a picture of what life is like in the here and now. God gives you his verdict as what to expect as we live between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. What is life going to be like in his world in the here and now? Uh, Revelation 6 to 22 tells you what life's going to be like. When you read Revelation, please don't read it uh, uh, sequentially. You know, 6 and 7, 8, 9, 10, 11... Please don't think this must happen, then this must happen, then this must happen. You're supposed to read 6 through to 20 as a big picture overview of what's going to happen in the here and now. So 6 and 7, you've got the seven seals, a picture of tyranny in this world, of fighting and war and famine. Uh, 8 to 10, you've got a picture uh, of, of chaos in the world. Uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, a picture of, of the battle between Satan and the Messiah. Uh, Then you've got a picture of persecution, and then the great last day, where the day of wrath and judgment, and then finally, the new heavens and new earth. As I preach through Revelation over the next few weeks, I pray that you will have a, the important word is, realistic view of God's world. That your eyes will be open to how real this book is in describing our world today. More than that, because it is grim and it is bleak, it's realistic, but more than that, I pray as we read through Revelation that you would long, you would long for glory, that you would long for heaven, that you would long to meet your Savior. And I pray that you would see Jesus, who is the hope in a helpless world.
And I pray that you would long for the people you know and love who are lost at the moment, who are lost without Christ, that they would know Jesus and that they too would long for glory. So let me pray, and then we're going to read chapters 6 and 7. Our Lord God, you are worthy of praise and honor and power because you created everything and you know us intimately. We thank you, Lord, that your word is so realistic. And I pray now that as I preach and as your word is read, uh, your spirit would be so powerfully at work in this place tonight, in our hearts and our minds, that he would teach us, refine us and transform us. And Lord, I pray that we would long for Jesus. And I ask that for his name's sake. Amen. So grab your Bibles. Uh, turn to Revelation 6. It's on page 870. And uh, Dave and Amy are going to read for us. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. His rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. His rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They call out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed, as they had been was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. 
The sun turned black, sackcloth made of gold hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars and sky fell to earth, as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich. The mighty and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, "Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand?" Reading on in chapter seven,、uh, verse nineteen,、uh, verse nine, I should say. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, "Salvation belongs to our God." Who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, "Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God for ever and ever. Amen." Then one of the elders asked me. These in white robes, who are they, and where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thanks, David. Amy. Here's our question for tonight: What is wrong with our world? You ever been watching the news? Channel Ten News, ten thirty at night, and you just sit there and you scratch your head because you've got murder, and then you've got young boys who beat a tourist at a bus station, and then you've got starvation and famine, and then you've got politicians、uh, for fraud and perjury, and we should watch our news. And scratch our head and just say, "This is a crazy, crazy, mixed-up world." Now, I read the newspaper yesterday. Within the first five pages, I counted twenty-four news items. It made me shake my head and go, "This is a messed-up world." Domestic violence, refugees, civil war in Sudan, gluttony, food waste, millions living day by day with cancer and HIV, and This is just a messed-up world, isn't it? And my fear is that we become desensitised. You know, 
we, we watch the news and we're not shocked anymore. Uh, we read the newspaper, it's just the norm. And we've stopped asking the question, what is happening in our world? Why is our world like it is? Or maybe you personally are going through tough, painful times and you're shaking your head and you're saying, why? Why is this happening to me? What is wrong with our world? Well, Jesus holds seven sealed scrolls. And as he opens these scrolls, he reveals history to us. And he tells us what to expect, what our world should look like. And Revelation 6 and 7 is spot on. Here's what our world should look like. Firstly, God's world is in complete chaos. Let's meet these, uh, these uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse. 6 verse 2, the first horse is white. Its rider held a bow and was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. This is a picture of a world where, where military rulers set out to invade other countries. They're bent on conquest. Uh, they want blood. They want to conquer lands. There's fighting and there's war. It's similar to the second horse that is red, a fiery red one, verse 4. And its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. A picture of a world of fighting and bloodbath and a picture of a world where there's no peace. And nation fights against nation. Or the third horse is a, a black horse. Verse 5. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in its hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages. Three quarts of barley for a day's wages. He's saying, A handful of wheat and it cost me a whole day's wages. Uh, uh, just three quarts of barley. That's what I need to survive today. And it's costing me a whole day's wages. And yet... Yet, verse 6, oh, don't damage the oil and the wine. It's this irony that, that people are starving in our world. People are struggling just to feed themselves each day. And other people live in luxury with oil and wine. They sit down to a bottle of wine costing $200 and people are starving to death. That's a crazy mixed up world, isn't it? And then the fourth horse, verse 8, was pale or literally chlorine colored. It's a corpse colored horse. And its rider was named Death. And they were given power a fourth of the earth, just a fourth of the earth, to kill by the sword, famine and plague. A picture of death and disease and plague. Remember, these are not four separate events. God is describing life in his world from the time of Christ until his return. What should we expect? Here's what to expect. War and famine and disease. And death. Now doesn't that describe our world today? Doesn't that describe the news today? Doesn't that describe our, our life in this world? You see, we are not a post-war world society. We live in the middle of war. Today, as we sit here in this place, over a hundred wars are taking place around the world. War is never romantic. From Genghis Khan to Hitler, from World War II to, to Iraq to the war on terrorism to the Solomon Islands, war is never romantic. Some people have never known a day of peace. Some people in this world today have grown up all their lives with fighting every single day. 
Now, I was thinking if I preached this sermon 100 years ago, at the beginning of, of the 20th century, uh, with the 20th century ahead of me, I think, oh, it's going to be a great century. But you look back on the 20th century, and what did you have? You had 6 million Jews through the gas, gas chamber. You had Stalin with his 2 million Soviet conquests. You had a million people uh, murdered through apartheid. Uh, you had 200,000 people wiped out through genocide. You had the, the killing fields of Cambodia. You had rape. You had murder and perjury. You had war and fighting. And in the 20th century, we didn't learn how to love each other better. We learned how to kill each other more effectively. That's reality, isn't it? A world at war. Let's not romanticize it. It's horrific. Oh, but famine isn't so bad, is it? It is bad. If you woke up every day and you didn't know whether you were going to survive today because you didn't know where your food was going to come from, you'd understand how bad famine was. Uh, Billy Graham says this, uh, one in three of those who survive birth in poor countries are unhealthy because of inadequate nutrition. And most don't survive to adulthood. Children are begging their parents to sell them to rich people so they can eat. And millions of children are forced to live on the street or in garbage heaps because they're starving to death. And kids are begging for food and kids are sleeping rough and that's the reality in our world. One of the most horrific things I've seen in life was when I visited Ethiopia about four years ago. In the middle of Ethiopia, there's these slums where they have nothing. But they've just about managed to get enough to build some shacks, some shelter, and a few scraps of food so they can survive each day. Oh, but a big hotel chain called the Sheraton decided it wanted to build a hotel there. And so the builders came in, and they bulldozed a township, and they built the Sheraton Hotel. And they sent these people onto the streets to beg for food and to beg for shelter. And it made me sick. Tourist buses driving into the Sheraton Hotel to sip their lattes as they drive past kids and adults just begging for food and begging for shelter on the streets. And that is the norm in our world today. And Brazil has 200,000 street kids. And many sleep rough in Australia here tonight. Or the plagues that God promised, the disease that wipes out 30% of the European population with a black death. HIV, swine flu, cancer. Now we're supposed to look at our world and say, wars, famine, death, disease, this is a crazy, mixed-up world. I read Revelation 6, and it reminded me of the words of Jesus in Mark 13, where he talks of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and nations rise up against nations. These things must happen, but the end is not yet. This is the norm. This is reality. We can sing things will only get better, but they're not going to get better. This is what God predicted for his world. So how do you respond to this? How do you respond to a world full of war and famine and disease? This is the shock. God's world is in chaos. But God is still sovereign. Just because we've got a world of pain and suffering and war and famine doesn't mean that God has lost control. In fact, John tells us exactly the opposite. So where do these riders and these horses come from? 
Who is opening these scrolls? In verse 1, I watched as the Lamb, Jesus Christ. He opened the first scroll. He, he reveals history to us. Who is it who speaks? It's the living creatures who speak on God's behalf. And look what they say. Verse 1, come. Come on, first rider. Come into our world. Uh, verse 3, come. Uh, verse 4, verse 5, come. Uh, verse 7, come on. It is God who is, who is giving these people into the world uh, for war and fighting and famine and destruction. Because the word given is there three times. 6 verse 2, the rider was given a crown. 6 verse 4, its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. Uh, 6 verse 8, they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword. That's an important word. Any power that these riders had is given by a sovereign God. The power to fight is given by God. The power to bring famine is given by God. The power to cause death is given by God who's on his throne and who is sovereign. And I know that will sit very uncomfortably with some people here tonight. The thought that God stands behind all these things, war, famine, disease, and death, will be very uncomfortable for some. But it's biblical. Because God is in control of everything in this world. There is nothing that happens that God could not stop if he wanted to. I don't know why he doesn't, but he has the power to do it. Do you struggle with that? Do you struggle with the concept that the God on his throne is totally sovereign over war and terrorism and famine and droughts and disease and death and your life and my life? See, John doesn't struggle with it. For John, that's a massive encouragement. The fact that these riders and these horses come from God, he sees that as an encouragement because no matter what happens in, in this world, whatever, whatever, whatever happens in his life, he knows that God's on his throne and God can stop it whenever he wants to. The sovereignty of God is a huge encouragement. This world keeps spinning. Wars keep happening. But God's on his throne. And we are still responsible. We are still responsible. Now, the fact that we chuck out a week's worth of food from our fridges while the other goes hungry, that is ridiculous. And the fact that we watch earthquakes and disasters and do nothing about it that's abhorrent. We are responsible to help those in need. But God is still sovereign. Here's my second point, And it's bleaker still. God's people are being killed. Because Jesus opens a fifth scroll. It's there in verse 9. And what does he see? I saw under the altar. He's supposed to think Leviticus the altar where blood is spread, the, the blood of animals is sacrificed. But this is not the blood of animals being sacrificed. What does John see in verse 9? I saw under the altar the sound of those people who had been slain. The men and women and the boys and girls who had been killed and martyred and, and persecuted and tortured for their faith because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. See, what John sees is Christians who have given their life for Christ. Christians who refuse to compromise and for that they're killed. Now, does that shock you? Uh, that when, 
when Jesus turns from the world to his church, he doesn't give us a picture of, you know, thousands of Christians meeting in multi-dollar complexes. He doesn't give us a, a picture of just nice, comfortable, middle-class Christians having easy lives in a local church. The picture that John gives us is of Christians who are being killed for their faith. People who believe that Jesus shed his blood for them and they love Jesus so much that they are willing to shed their blood for him. That's the picture he gives us. That's the norm. And that's reality for church history. The first century Christians who lived under Emperor Nero, every day for them was like playing a Russian roulette. Tacitus writes this, Large numbers of Christians were dressed in wild animal skins, torn to pieces by dogs and crucified. Or they were made into torches to be ignited after dark. Tens of thousands were killed by the sword. Tens of thousands were fed to wild animals and thousands more were publicly butchered in the street. And that's still true today. As I speak tonight, there are Christians in Nigeria who by the end of this service will be martyred for their faith. There are Christians in Sudan who every day put their life on the line for Jesus. There are Christians in Korea who will be asked a question right now, do you believe in Jesus? And if they say the word yes, they will be shot. I could stand here and testify about the girl who was raped because of her faith because she refused to deny Jesus. Or the the boy who was tortured and electrocuted because of his faith, because he refused to deny Jesus. I could talk about the woman who went on a medical mission and she gave up her life for Christ. I could talk about the man who boldly preached Christ and refused to compromise and for that he died. I could talk about the 171,000 people who were martyred in 2008 for their faith. See, that's the reality, friends. What John is telling us is that this is not the norm. Sitting in church week in, week out with no persecution and no one coming for you is not the norm. We are blessed. We're blessed that we can meet without persecution. We're blessed that you can go to work tomorrow and tell someone you're a Christian and you don't fear death. The norm is martyrdom, the norm is being killed for your faith. Oh, please don't tell me you suffer. Someone mocking you is not the same as somebody raping your daughter and slaying your sons and killing, your, killing you and your family. That's real persecution. So what do these Christians cry out? What do these souls long for? He said in verse 10, they called out in a loud voice, how long, spot that word, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. It's not a cry for revenge, it's not a cry for vengeance, it's a cry for justice. They are longing for the day and they are pleading for the day when God will justly judge his world They're longing for the day when their enemies will be brought to account. 
when the proud will be brought low and God's faithful will be lifted high. And that's what we cry out, friends, every time we say the Lord's Prayer. You know, every time you pray, Lord, uh, Lord, your kingdom come, you're praying for justice. Every time you, you cry out, deliver us from evil, you're, you're crying for justice. And every time you cry out, come, Lord Jesus, you're asking for justice. Isn't that what you want, a world where there's justice, where God's just judgment will come? And so these people cry, how long, O Lord? Why doesn't God answer? Why doesn't God stop the killing fields of Cambodia? Why doesn't God stop the martyrdom of all the Christians today? And the answer is in verse 11. And it's it's horrific. It's a remarkable statement about the sovereignty of our God. Verse 11. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer. What for? Until the number of their fellow servants... Their fellow Christians who were to be killed as they had been was completed. That is an incredible statement about God's sovereignty. The world keeps spinning. Christians keep on being killed for their faith until the full number of souls has been brought into the kingdom and God knows exactly who's going to be killed, when they're going to be killed and that's going to keep happening until God's kingdom is complete. Is that the God that you worship who is in control even when Christians are martyred? Our world's in chaos. God's people are being killed as we speak right here, right now. And God's judgment is coming. That's the sixth seal. A picture of the end times, the last day, the day of wrath, the day of judgment. Verse 12, it's like the unraveling of creation. It's like the reversal of Genesis 1. It's like the, the heaven and the earth is being rolled back up again. So there's a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned red. The stars fell from the sky. And then the sky receded like a scroll. And every mountain, every island removed from its place. And then all the tyrants will be exposed. The kings, verse 15, the princes, the, the rich, the mighty. And they're all going to be there and they are running and they're trying to hide because judgment day is so horrific. The picture of verse 15, people hiding in caves and among the rocks. It reminds me of, you know, there's, there's news footage of, of the Twin Towers. And the towers are falling and people are just running and they're running and they're running. They're just desperate and desperate for shelter. Or the picture of the earthquake in Haiti or in Chile. And people are just running and running and running. Please, Lord, please, Lord, protect me, hide me. But on that last day, that day of wrath, there is no protection. For those who don't know Christ, there is no protection. And God in his mercy, and God in his kindness is warning us about a day of wrath where his holy and right and just judgment will happen and every man, woman, boy and girl will meet their maker. And there's nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. And the question is the right question to ask in verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Who can stand? Isn't that the right question? Who on earth can stand before their maker and survive that great day? Can you stand? 
on that great day? Uh, do you deserve to stand? Do you, do you deserve protection? Do you deserve to be rescued? Oh, please don't tell me you've been good. Please don't tell me you've sat in church. Please don't tell me you've preached. Please don't tell me you've read the Bible from cover to cover. How are you going to stand on that last day? How are you going to stand in the face of a just and right and holy God? And that's why chapter 7 is just this beautiful, beautiful picture of hope. Because chapter 6 ends with who can stand, and chapter 7 tells you who's going to stand. Who will stand? God's people will stand. God's people will stand on that last day. All those whom God has called his own, all who have trusted in the Lamb, in Jesus, that you will stand protected by God, enjoying his presence. On that day, my friends, you have nothing to fear if you're in Christ. So let me finish tonight. If you are in Christ, let me give you some words of assurance and some words of hope and some words of certainty and some words of comfort. And they're all taken from chapter 7. If you're in Christ on that last day, here's the first word. You're sealed. It's ironic, isn't it? He opened seven seals, but God seals his people. 7 verse 3. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. We put a mark on the foreheads of all the servants of God. And if you're in Christ, you're a servant of God, and he's sealed you, he's marked you. What does that mean? You're sealed, you're protected, you're protected from judgment. Uh, the elect, God's chosen ones, are kept secure on judgment day. Amidst the destruction, uh, as the world collapses, as everyone around you perishes, you are sealed and you're protected because you're in Christ. He's your refuge. The next word for you is the word multitude. Because you're going to be surrounded by other brothers and sisters who are also sealed. You're going to be part of a great gathering who are praising God. Because verse 9, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. No one could count. It's innumerable. From every nation, tribe, people and language. Rich, poor, black, white, men, women. They're all going to be there. It reminds me of um, the promise to Abraham, you know. Stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. They just can't measure it. That, that's heaven. That is glory. And you can be part of that if you're in Christ. The third word is the word victorious. It tells us in verse 9, they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches. Now what on earth is white robes? Verse 14. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation, the, the grim situation of earth, the tyranny, the persecution, the martyrdom. They've come out of that and they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They've washed their robes in the blood of Jesus and they are pure and they are cleansed and they are righteous. And they're forgiven. And the fourth word is the word worship. Because that's the only response. They cry out in verse 10, Salvation belongs to our God. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God. And they're just around the throne and all they can do is adore and worship and praise their heavenly father because they're safe and they're rescued and they're there for all eternity to worship the lamb on the throne. 
in Luke chapter 15 where it talks about the lost coin or the lost, uh, lost sheep, it says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Can you imagine the rejoicing in heaven over the multitude of sinners who repented? It's going to be like this glorious picture of just people adoring and worshipping their God because they're safe and they're secure for all eternity. And God is with them. He is present with them. Verse 15, they're before the throne of God and they serve him day and night. They see him face to face. And he who sits on the throne, look at that in chapter 15, he will spread his tent over them. The tent for the presence of God, the tabernacle, he's there with them. And it's also there to protect them. Because verse 16, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. And the sun will not beat upon them and the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. This beautiful picture of refreshment and no suffering and no pain and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Have you got it? Your God does not promise you an easy life in the here and now. He doesn't promise that life won't be tough for you. He doesn't promise that this world is going to be a nice comfortable world. But he does promise that if you're in Christ... On that last day, put the word I am in front of that. On that last day, I am sealed. I'm part of the multitude. I'm victorious. I will worship my God. I'll be in God's presence. I will be protected by my God. And then you just say, wow, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Because there is nobody apart from the Lord Jesus Christ where you could be protected and safe for all eternity. Friends, if you know Jesus here tonight, if he's your Lord and your Savior... The world keeps spinning. Wars keeeps happening. This world is chaotic, but you are safe in the arms of a loving Savior. But my last word for you tonight is this. Surprising word. It's the word silence. You see, when the seventh seal is opened in 8 verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. See, it's not praise that's ultimately response to God. It's not worship that's the ultimate response. It's just silence before him. Now, we struggle to be silent for two minutes. <laughs> but that half of an hour of just, it's not literally half an hour. <laughs> it's just the right response is just to sit before your God and you're just, you've got nothing to say. Because you deserve nothing. You don't deserve to be protected, but he has rescued you. And so you just stand there and just go, wow. Wow. And she might be here tonight, and you're not in the Lamb, you're not in Christ. If that is you, can I say, with all humility, you are in grave, 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 grave danger. Because there's, there's a day of wrath, a day of judgment. And there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide. Your job can't save you, your family can't save you, your qualifications can't save you, your good works can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. And I'm pleading with you to turn to him and to trust in him. But if you're in Christ tonight, I pray you would leave here 
just being realistic about our world. When the news comes on tonight, when you open the pages of the paper tomorrow, you're supposed to say, yep, yep, that's our world. But I also pray you would ask, come Lord Jesus. Please come Lord Jesus. Please take me home and wrap up your world. Let me pray. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living waters and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Oh Lord God in heaven, we long for that day when we see you face to face. We long for the day where we are protected in your presence. We adore you, we worship you, we give you the the due honor. And we just stand in silence. Because you are God and you have rescued us. Lord, I do ask that if there are people here tonight who don't yet know you. Lord, please be merciful. And if that's you here tonight... I'm going to give you a moment now just to silently in your own heart, in your own mind, just ask God for forgiveness and reach out to Christ. Lord, I thank you that you've sealed us for that day. You've given us the white robes. You've given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us to endure, to persevere, and to boldly stand up for Jesus. I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.